morning. Will you please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 18. It is an honor to be able to begin this series in a Christian worldview. This morning as we begin, we're going to read John 18 verses 33 through 38. The word of the Lord reads, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? When he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. May God bless the reading of his word. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as a gift of your grace, when we are adopted into your family, you give us a new heart, you give us a new life, and you give us a new mind. It's our honor with those new minds to think like Christ. I pray as we begin this study that our minds would more and more be conformed to the thinking of our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As you're finding your seats, I'd ask you to have your outlines nearby. We'll refer to them throughout the lesson. This uh, topic of of worldview is very near and dear to me when Pastor Brian and I were praying over different topics to begin the year. And when we got to worldview, it was immediately to me, like, yep, that's what we got to do. We were real excited and we were working on a, uh, we had five weeks in January, so we're working on a five-week plan. And after a few weeks of that, we said, nope, we need more than five weeks. Well, let's do January and February. That's a nine-week plan. That'll be great. Nope. So it's right now a 10-week plan going into March. It's 10 weeks going on 10 years. Uh, this we, I had the opportunity of teaching a worldview class at the high school we used to run. We called it philosophy, and we taught it twice a week for nine months, and that wasn't enough time. So we'll... We'll do what we can. This is definitely a topic that we can dig deeper in. I'll do my best to contain my excitement and respect your time and keep this sermon under seven hours, but no promises. Uh, As we begin, let's talk about the spies and the Israelites. We go back in time to the book of Exodus, and as we see the Israelites, they've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And in God's perfect timing, he delivers them. He delivers them through amazing displays of power. There are ten plagues using, showing the Egyptians that all those false deities that they worshipped were completely powerless. 
against the one true God, the God of Israel. So after the 10 plagues, the, Egypt, the Israelites are finally allowed to escape that captivity and make their journey towards the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham so many years before. So young and old, injured and healthy, they all make the trek. They all have all of their possessions, plus more, because the Egyptians actually gave the Israelites treasures just to get rid of them. And they make their journey. They make this journey to the promised land after some time Egypt's hearts get hardened again, especially the Pharaoh. And they start to chase down the Israelites. The Israelites, they get to the Red Sea. They're a little unsure of what the next step should be. And it's at that point that they hear the thunder approaching as the hoofbeats of the hundreds and hundreds of horses come over the mountain and the Israelites are terrified. Moses says some of the best words in scripture, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses raises his hands and the sea before them parts. Wall of water on the left, wall of water on the right, dry ground before them. And the Bible goes out of its way to say the ground is dry. Even the moisture from the dirt at the bottom of the Red Sea is sucked from the soil so the Israelites can have firm footing as they make their trek through the Red Sea. Young and old, injured and healthy, all of their possessions make their journey through the Red Sea. The hard-hearted Egyptians think they can chase down the Israelites in the midst of the sea. It's not firm footing for them. As the Egyptians make their way through the Red Sea, they're getting stuck in the mud. And they find out much too late their future. And as all the Israelites are cleanly, safely through the Red Sea... God brings down the wall of water, crushing their enemies before them. Every Israelite saw this. Every Israelite made this trek. They continue their journey to the promised land. They're right there on the outskirts, and God has them send 12 spies. One spy for each tribe. So every tribe has a trusted representative. And those 12 spies go to spy out and observe the promised land they've been waiting for for so long. The spies come back after 40 days. All 12 spies are unanimous in the land is beautiful. It's flowing with milk and honey. And when I was a kid, I thought that meant there were waterfalls of milk and honey. And I, I learned later that that's a description. To be flowing with milk and honey, in that era, milk and honey were the extras. You needed bread, you needed water, you were blessed if you had milk and honey. So to have a land flowing with milk and honey, this is a land so beautiful, it will meet all of our needs and then some. The spies were unanimous. The spies were also unanimous in the assessment, these cities are big and fortified and those people were stronger than were the Israelites. This is where the unanimous verdict changes. Because 10 of the spies, upon seeing those people, upon seeing those, city, those cities that were so fortified, 10 of the people said, we will die. We're grasshoppers in their sight and they'll destroy us. Two of the spies disagreed very strongly. Joshua and Caleb said, no, no, no. 
if God will have favor on us now, just like he had favor in us in Egypt, this is no problem for us. They're big. Our God is bigger. One of the most beautiful phrases in scripture. They are our bread. We will consume them with the ease that we consumed our lunch this morning with God's strength. Unfortunately, we probably know the end of the story. And the Israelite people believed the report of the 10 spies as opposed to Joshua and Caleb. And the journeying Israelites become the wandering Israelites. And they have to wander the desert for 40 years while that unfaithful generation dies off. And then the next generation will inherit the promised land because God made a promise and he always keeps his promise. I give this history as an illustration. The 12 spies, all of Israel, they were all born and raised in the exact same circumstance. Their whole lives, they were slaves in Egypt until God delivered them. All of Israel, if they didn't visibly witness the, 12, the 10 plagues, they are well aware of those 10 plagues. And they all very much saw the Red Sea part. All of these people on the outskirts of the promised land, they all shared the same religion. But they had a very different worldview. Most of Israel had a worldview that said, our God is too weak to protect us. How disappointing that only two people had a worldview that said, our God is bigger than our problems. As we begin this study in worldview, let's begin it humbly understanding we've got a lot of Christian brothers and sisters they believe in Jesus Christ. They've received him as Lord and Savior, but their worldview is not in line with this book. And the way they see the world and the way they respond to this world makes their God look very, very small. May we, by grace, not be those Christians. You've got some definitions that we're going to be going through today. Let's begin in Roman numeral one, letter A, with a definition of worldview. This is from a Christian philosopher named Michael Vlach, he says, a worldview is the overall perspective from which a person or group sees, understands, and interprets the world. This includes conscious and unconscious presuppositions and beliefs concerning a wide variety of topics, such as the existence of God, who we are as human beings, our purpose in life, our duties and roles in society, and life after death. Now, I'm going to be throwing some of these definitions at you and some of them are a little uh, scholastic or academic in their phraseology. Uh, after reading the definitions, I'm going to try to say it in such a way that our young people uh, can understand. I've got my young kids in the back and I always ask them at the end of every sermon, what'd you learn today? What'd the pastors say today? So I want us all to be able to grasp this. So what is this definite? Because you know, how often do we use the word presupposition, unconscious? You know, what does this mean? A worldview is how we see the world at, at a very simple level. But it goes way, way beyond how we see the world. It's how we see the world. It's what we think the world should be. It's how we respond to the certain things that we see and experience in our world. And our worldviews can be very different, even as we're seeing the exact same thing. 
One of the best illustrations I've heard is like a pair of glasses. So using my glasses as an example, let's imagine that my lenses here are rose tinted. Maybe we've heard the phrase rose colored glasses. Okay, so I've got these lenses here and they're made of a, of a reddish glass. So when I put my glasses on, I'm seeing the same objects that are in the room, but because I've got this reddish tint, as I'm seeing all the objects I'm seeing, I'm seeing them with a reddish tint. And now the object, the, the goal of the glasses that I'm wearing is that it would make the objects that I'm looking at more clearly. It's possible I could put on a pair of glasses and it could actually make things more blurry. So I'm wearing the glasses, I'm seeing the objects, but they're, they're, they're blurry, they're fuzzy. Is that a person? Is that a post? And I'm having trouble with things. And the truth of the matter is, some people have a worldview that makes things more clear. And unfortunately, a lot of people have worldviews that causes them to see things in a way that's not consistent with reality. Just as, as a silly example on how worldview affects how we see things, let's imagine I gave you the homework assignment, go home tonight and watch a news report, what three different networks report on the exact same event. You're already, yeah, you know where this is going. So this reporter sees the event and reports on it. This reporter sees the event, reports on it. But these reporters have very, very different worldviews. So reporter A sees it, and he sees this event and thinks, this is the best thing in the world. So as he makes his report, he reports that event as if it's the best thing in the world. But reporter B sees the exact same event and thinks, this is terrible. So reporter B talking about the exact same event, says it as if they're from a different world because it's so drastically different. It's the same event. What's the difference? The worldview. They're seeing things and responding to things, the exact same thing, but seeing and responding very, very different because they have a very, very different worldview. And... As we begin, let's understand a few things about worldview. Most of us, most humans, don't really think through their worldview very much. They don't stop to think, where did I get my worldview? Is my worldview consistent? Is it leading to reality? And one of my, my uh, worldview books I have, the author mentions that most of us pick up our worldview the same way we pick up a cold, by being around people. So I'm getting, I'm around these uh, fellow employees for 40 hours a week. I'm getting a little bit of their worldview. I'm at church on Sunday. I'm getting a little bit of that worldview. I watch these programs, this news station. I'm getting a little bit of that worldview. So now I've got worldview beliefs from these different places and I'm not stopping to think, do they even coexist? Can this worldview and this worldview mesh? And the honest fact is, most of us have inconsistent worldviews because we just haven't taken that step back. Does this and this go together? And does this and this connect with reality? If we look at America as a whole, 
and the overall worldview of America. And I understand that America's got so many different cultures just in this one country. The, the, the culture of Southern California is very different than the culture of Montana, which is very different than the culture of Maine. We got tons of different things. San Diego, oh my goodness. How many different cultures are there just in San Diego? So th- th- I understand this is a, a flawed analogy in some sense, but work with me. If we're looking at the overall worldview dominating America, we can probably say that the culture of America is a culture of public atheism. Which is weird because according to the last survey, over 80% of Americans believe in some sort of God. So again, here's the inconsistency. You, you survey the average American to figure out what they think and what their worldview is. And in one sentence, they're going to say, yeah, I believe in a God. But then in another sentence, they're going to say, but I believe this, this, and this. And their beliefs are completely humanistic, as if there is no God. So we're living in this confused culture with multitudes of worldviews all around us. This is the reality of today. This is the reality for us as Christians in the world today. And it's important that we as Christians understand the importance of not just knowing our worldview, but having a worldview that's in line with Scripture. Look with me, if you will, the two verses under letter B. Let's start with 2 Corinthians 4, or chapter 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. My fellow note takers underline this next phrase. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Bringing every one of our thoughts into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? I want Christ to be the master of my thoughts. Every single thing that I think, I want it to go through my master with his approval. Is this an appropriate thing for me to think? Now, why do I want to do that? Why is that so urgent? Look at the context of that passage. Because we're at war. There is a battle for your mind. It's gotten some publicity the last few years as parents have been more aware of what their kids are learning in our post-COVID world. There's a tension, why are my kids reading that book in third grade? Why do my kids have to write that report as a first grader? And and parents are kind of getting outraged. If I'm being really honest, the reason parents are getting outraged now is because they weren't paying attention in the last 150 years. They've been battling for your mind Since the garden. This is nothing new. And unfortunately, too many Christians are living with a peacetime mindset. Not understanding there is a war raging to control your thought process and make it so that the way you see this world is the world's way, not God's way. I've never been a soldier, but I'm making an assumption here. But I think if you're a soldier that doesn't know you're at war, it would make you a lousy soldier. How urgent is it that you carry your weapons? How urgent is it 
that you have your eyes up watching for the enemy, watching their devices? How much are you working to protect your fellow soldiers if you don't even know you're in the battle? As, as, as children of God, as soldiers in his kingdom, we need to understand we're at war. And in this war, we have to fight hard to make sure that our mind is in line with God. We have to fight hard. Last time I checked, war is not comfortable or easy. We might let our guard down. The world is not. When the world senses Christianity coming into the culture, what do they do right away? Get that out! Separation of church and state. No place for that. They'll catch our stuff. Are we catching theirs? We've got to be aware. Look at our next verse with me, if you will. Colossians 2.8. Beware, the apostle says, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We have to beware. From the earliest stages in most of our school systems, the, the argument is that they're teaching neutral education. There is no such thing as neutral education. Those words don't go together. Most schooling in America is based on a Darwinian worldview perspective, which removes God from the equation. So most Christians, even though they believe in Christ, still have remnants of the Darwinism that they were raised with behind different presuppositions behind different ways they see things. And, and that's a curse. You know this phrase, men? Ideas have consequences. The men from last year's men's breakfast go, hey, we heard that over and over again. The last year in our, in our men's breakfast, that was kind of our series for the year, that ideas have consequences. We all know the name, whether we did history, good, did well in history or not, we know the names Hitler and Stalin. Those men had a Darwinian worldview, and they logically, consistently worked out the ramifications of their worldview to the detriment of this world. And that's obviously not to say that every person with a Darwinian worldview is going to be as evil as them. Not at all. Those worldviews, those thoughts, those ideas, consequences. We have to guard for ourselves, for our kids, and for our grandkids. We have to guard our mind against the onslaught that's coming. And that was my five-minute introduction. Hope you all ate a good breakfast. All right. What about truth? Even you got that definition for me on truth? I don't know if this is in your notes. Truth is propositional. Okay, so let's work through this. The logically basic sense of truth is a quality of propositions that are also true. What? Okay. Here's my proposition. I'm going to make a statement. This podium right here, my hand is resting on a podium. This podium that my hand is resting on right now is black. Okay? I just made a proposition. I made a statement of fact. And that statement that I made is either true or false. There's no room for anything else. 
this podium that my hand rests on is true, or this podium that my hand rests on is black, it's true, or it's not black, it's false. Okay? Truth is propositional. Last week, Pastor Brian, his uh, verse, 1 Timothy 3.16, if we remember it, it was six propositional statements. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus was seen by angels. Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. Jesus was believed on in the world. Jesus was taken up in glory. Those were six propositional statements that are either true or false. If you weren't here last week, they're true. Okay? That truth is propositional. Okay? Now look at your notes in Roman numeral 2, letter B, or letter A, excuse me. There's this idea that truth is propositional. Our culture is currently fighting that in some ways. Okay? So here, here's something that our culture has done in many different religions. They, they've separated. So they, they have room, most religions have room for propositional truth, but one of the arguments is, and kids, what I'm about to say is wrong. This is a belief that a lot of people have, but it's wrong for what I'm going to say for the next two minutes. There's a common belief in, in some religious worlds that there are propositional truths such as two plus two is four. There's room for that. Yes, two plus two can be four. Yes, that propositional truth is, is true, but that truth belongs in the public sector. That's true for all of us, and that's fine. Religion, though, isn't in the public sector. Religion's in the private sector. And this, there's a different kind of truth over here. Your propositional truths are over here in the public world. In this part of the world, this is subjective truth. You have your belief about God. I have my belief about God. They're very, very different. But that's okay because it's a private truth. It's more of a value. So as long as my truth doesn't hurt you, then I can have whatever truth I want in this part of my world. It's my, it's my private thought. It's my private world. So I can have my private truths. And these two things don't coexist. In many parts of the world today. Okay? And again, kids, what, all that stuff I just said is wrong. Okay? Um, maybe you'll, you'll hear people when you're talking about religion, oh yeah, that's good for you. Oh yeah, yeah, and if you believe that, that's great. Can I be real blunt for a second? If what you believe in, what you are resting your eternal condition on is a lie... That's not good for you. It's the exact opposite. And as people say that phrase, then you're knowing their worldview. Okay, so if you're saying my religion is good for you and you're, you know, everybody's religion is good for them, now you're knowing as you hear that, okay, you have a worldview of, and here's our phrase, of religious pluralism. If you've never heard that phrase, we can probably look at it for a second and figure out what it means. Religious pluralism is the idea all religions are equally valid. All are good, all are acceptable. You can have yours, I can have mine, and they're all good. All roads lead to God. Okay, so that's a current belief that is dominating our world in regards to truth. That's not truth. That's not what truth is. Truth isn't this subjective thing 
where we can have conflicting truths. What is truth? Let's look at letter B. Truth is absolute and objective. What does that mean? If it's true, it's true. Doesn't matter if you and I agree with it. Doesn't matter if you and I have been exposed to it. Doesn't matter if we voted on it. If it's true, it's true. And other things would then be false. That's what To knowledge. Before there was mankind on this earth to recognize truth or identify truth, there was already truth. It's universal. If it's true here, it's true on the other side of the world. It's exclusive. What does exclusive mean? Again, I got a club. I have the club of truth. Anything that is not truth is kicked out of the club. But I really, really want in. You can't come in. You're not truth. Only truth is allowed in the exclusive club of truth. Truth is unchanging. Two plus two was four yesterday. Two plus two is four today. Two plus two will be four tomorrow. There will not be a time in history where two plus two is seven. There will not be a time in history where two plus two is purple. Two plus two is four. That is an unchanging eternal truth. And here's how we know it can be that way because it has, truth has a standard. Two different times last month in two very different parts of my life, I heard very passionate debates about french fries. And I'm making a mistake talking about french fries this close to lunch. Work with me. But and again, totally different parts of my world. But there were passionate pleas trying to convince others to come to their side and see the truth of what was the best french fry. And they were making truth claims. And it was all in good fun. And I believe they're all still friends. Now, truth, excuse me, French fries are in opinion world, not truth world. Why? What puts one thing in one part and something else in the other? French fries are in opinion world because there's no standard. There's no eternal standard that says this is what a French fry should look like and taste like. So it's all up to preference. And you can like your kind of French fry, and I can like my kind of French fry, and a French fry for maybe somebody's got a potato French fry, and somebody else has a zucchini French fry. That's fine. I would never eat the zucchini French fry. But there's no standard. So we can have our preference. There are other things in this world where there is a standard. True and false. Right and wrong. So if there's a standard, we should ask a really, really important question. Says who? You're saying that's the standard, says who? Did you make yourself the standard? And if so, has your self and your preference eternally been the standard? Otherwise, we're in preference world. By God's grace, as Christians... We have an eternal standard. Letter C, our standard is God and his word. Jesus says in John 17, as he's praying his great high priestly prayer, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 
Let's go back to our uh, religious pluralism, talking about them. So again, their belief is there's propositional truth over here, and there's private, subjective truth over here. Here's how they can say that. They can say that because their belief is, those that hold to religious pluralism, they believe God does not reveal himself to us in propositional truths. He just reveals himself. So if that's where God is, whatever he is, and again, kids, what I'm about to say is wrong. So then if there is no standard and God just reveals himself, so then God might reveal himself to you this way, and then you, based on your interpretation of that experience, you interpret God that way. Somebody else, very different interaction with God, very different experience with God. They come from a different place, so they interpret God differently. Now, all of a sudden, their idea of God is drastically different than the first. But... If that's how God reveals himself, if God just reveals himself however, whenever, wherever, and there's no standard in that world, then we can all have our subjective truths about God. There's no standard. That's not the Christian worldview. Think about working that out. I have my experience with God. I interpret God based on my experience. In that situation, who's God? You don't think Satan's played with that one for thousands of years? Let me give them a worldview where they make God according to their image and their pride will keep them there. That's not the Christian view. The Christian worldview is there is a God. He is holy. He is loving. He is just. He is righteous. He is merciful. He communicates with his image bearers through the Bible. That's the Christian worldview. There is a standard in the Christian worldview. The standard is the authoritative, inerrant, clear, necessary, and sufficient word of God. I said those words for a reason. These words I just said, this is our Sunday school lessons for the next four weeks. Listen to these words again. This is what we're going to teach in Sunday school at 10 a.m. The Bible is authoritative, inerrant, clear, necessary, and sufficient. This is how God communicates with his people. How he communicates truth to his people. His word is truth. And then letter D, Jesus himself is truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's think back to the passage we read at the beginning in John 18. Jesus and Pilate having that interaction. In verse 37, I believe I have a slide for that even. Uh, Jesus, uh, Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus says, you say rightly. That I am a king. We should have done 10 weeks on that phrase. R.C. Sproul says of this passage that the objective truth Jesus says right there, that he's the king, that's the objective truth upon which his life stands or falls. Powerful. Jesus says, you say rightly, I'm a king. 
And he keeps talking. For this cause, Pilate, I'm about to tell you why I'm here. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears the, um, who is of the truth, hears Jesus' voice. There's many reasons the Bible says where Jesus tells us why he came. He tells us he came to seek and save the lost. He tells us he came to fulfill the Father's plans. There's several answers to that question. But one of the, one of the answers that we see most clearly here at the end of Jesus' life before the crucifixion, before his resurrection, came to this world to bear witness truth. And we stand on that as Christians. And Pilate asks after that, what is truth? And if you look at the text, it's really, really hard. It definitely doesn't say what his tone was. Maybe we could make some guesses based on what happens before and after, but, you know, I mean, did he ask scoffingly? <laughs> what is truth? Did he ask confused? What is truth? Did he ask longingly? What is truth? A little unclear. We should talk about truth, though, and God's word does reveal it by his grace. Turn your page over if you've got it. Under Roman numeral three, we have Harold Netlin's propositions of Christian exclusivity. What? Harold Netlin was a, uh, a missionary who became a, a professor of religions. He claims Christianity makes claims of exclusivity. So that's the opposite of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is all religions are true, equally true, and all have validity. Christian exclusivism is, nope, one religion, only one religion, based in Christ. And now Harold Netlin makes his claims based on, I'm going to throw another big phrase at you guys. He makes his claims based on what we call in logic, the law of non-contradiction. Okay? Oh, what? Podium. Claim number one, proposition number one. This podium that my hand rests on is solid black. Proposition number two. This podium that my hand rests on is solid yellow. We have a problem. Those two claims cannot both be true. Because those two propositions, those two claims, contradict. Logically speaking, they both can, they can both be wrong... They both can't be right. It's logically impossible for two contradictory statements to be right. I could say this podium is solid black and this podium is made of wood. That's not a contradiction. But I can't say this color of this podium is black and also the color of this podium is yellow. It contradicts. So based on the logical law of non-contradiction, here's what... Uh, David Nobel says uh, of religion, specifically Christianity. I think we'll have that quote on the screen above me. When we apply the law of non-contradiction to the religions of the world, we find that Hindus, Buddhists, Jews, and Muslims deny what Christians affirm. That is, that Jesus is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. Either Jesus is, in fact, a member of the Trinity... Or he is not. If he is not, then Christians are wrong and people of other religions are right. On the other hand, 
If Christians are right, then those other religions are wrong. It cannot be both ways. While it is possible all the religions of the world are false, it is a certainty that they cannot all be true. Basic elementary laws of logic, two contradictory things can't be true. If every religion in the world said every other religion in the world is true, then there's room for that. But when there is a religion that makes strong claims, us and only us, that's an exclusive claim. That's a claim that now there are too many contradictions and they can't all be true. And Christianity makes exclusive claims. Here's what Harold Netlin says are the four claims to propositions of Christian exclusivity. Letter A. Jesus Christ is the unique incarnation of God, fully God and fully man. We talked about that the last four weeks in our sermons. Letter B. Only through the person and work of Jesus Christ is there the possibility of salvation. Jesus just said that in John 14, 6. Letter C. The Bible is God's unique revelation written and thus is true and authoritative. We're going to talk about that the next four weeks in Sunday school. Letter D. Where the claims of Scripture are incompatible with those of other faiths, the latter must be rejected as false. Christian worldview says the Bible is the word of God and the Bible is truth. Guess what that means? Anything contradicting this book is not true. It is false. Now, so when we say the Bible is true, some will, well, then does the Bible talk about the truth about everything? And the easy answer is no. There's a lot of things in math and in science that are not mentioned in the Bible. But anything in the math world and in the science world, if it contradicts anything in Scripture, it's not true. We're seeing it wrong. It's being interpreted wrong, it being science or math. God is a logical God, so science works and math works. This word is truth. Things that contradict this word are false. It's not loving for me to lead you on and make you think otherwise. As we come to the conclusion, as we try to wrestle with, so okay, so if, if all of that is true, what do we do with it if we're forming a Christian worldview? We understand that God's the God of truth. And he communicates truth through scripture. We understand that anything that conflicts with the truth of Scripture must be deemed false. And as we're talking about worldview in particular the next nine weeks, I told you a few minutes ago, we're at war, this isn't going to be comfortable, this isn't going to be easy. Odds are most of us in this room haven't given a lot of thought to the forming of our worldview. So odds are most of us in this room have inconsistencies that by God's grace will be weeded out. That means discomfort. That means recognizing the humbling thought, wait, I was wrong. And having to change, potentially. I'm going to echo Pastor Brian as he said so many times. We need to come into this series as God's people with open hands. What does that mean? I'm, Jesus, I am ready to let go of anything that is not in line with your thinking. 
if this book tells me I was thinking wrong, I let it go. Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. That includes being the Lord of the way I think. But there's going to be that pull. Jesus, I don't like the way you tell me to think about money. I don't like your worldview on how I spend my time. I much prefer my perspective on marriage than yours. Be the Lord over here, but God, I want this. I said this is war. Quite possibly, the first war is not with Satan. It's with our own sinful desires. With our own pride coming up, wanting to still do things the way we've done them for so long. Possible. The good news is the truth will set us free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you love us enough to share the truth with us. You are a God of truth. You sent a Savior who is a Savior and Lord of truth. You communicate with us through a word of truth. We so much desire to see your truth clearly. If we have a worldview that is making your truth blurry or fuzzy, we pray that you would give us better glasses. Give us a better worldview. We want to think like Christ. We want to see this world like Christ. We want to see our lives the way Jesus sees our lives. We want to see the lives of those around us the same way Jesus sees those lives. Echoing the prayer of Psalm 119. Open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might see the wondrous truths of your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time in our service, we will celebrate communion.